Hey, what's going on? I'm Lee McCormick. Welcome to Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast, episode 5, Darkness Tour 78. We're going to discuss the amazing 1978 tour behind the Darkness on the Edge of Town record. In my opinion, one of the greatest and most anticipated E Street Band tours. We're all just prisoners of rock and roll. Everybody, let it rock. How you doing? First... I'd like to say a few things first. First, I'd like to th- like to thank you for coming down. I'd like to thank LA for treating us the way they have. It's been fantastic the last few days in town. Yeah, and uh, I know there was a lot of people that waited a long time online outside. And there was a lot of them that didn't get in for one reason or another. And I want to apologize to them and say that I'm very sorry. If I could, I would have liked to invite the whole town. But, so I'd just like to, the folks that didn't get in and had a hard time out on the street, I'd like to say I'm sorry, it was my fault, and, uh, and uh, I wasn't trying to turn this into no private party, because I don't play no parties anymore, except my own. So give me a little slap back on this microphone, Wong, we're going to do some rock and roll for you. Well, 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 Oh, 
artists do sets of about 75 minutes you play tonight three and a half hours of high intensity <laughs> i mean you didn't stop moving how do you why do you do that why do you work so hard crazy <laughs> <laughs> madness <laughs> Alright, so let's get into it. We're going to talk about the Darkness Tour 1978. I don't know, it's probably the greatest uh, E Street Band tour of them all. This was the, the kind of the benchmark, I think, for the E Street Band, where everything was kind of like, you know, came from, from this amazing tour that they did uh, supporting that record, and it just like the whole... The okay, whole... but from your point of view, having not um, been into Bruce then, where are... Before I go into my whole thing, you know, I was there kind of story... Where do you draw that opinion from? From listening to the tape? From yeah, I would have gone. Yeah, in other words, I would have probably uh, when I got into my mid-teens, 15, 16, 17, That's when I started realizing all these bootlegs are out there, and I started going to record shows and realizing, wow, you can buy live concerts from 1978, and uh, you know, start acquiring all these things from my favorite artists. And there was video bootlegs out there too, so I was able to get a few uh, video shows. And I guess after like, you know, 20, 30 years of listening to these musics and watching all these concerts, like I've kind of made the opinion like that that's that was a heavy tour, man. So like the band came so, into so the room. So that's my point. In other words, objectively from not yeah. have been there, but from having gleaned. In other words, so you've listened to Born to Run yep. concert from that era. You've listened to the early era live stuff. You've listened to later tours, the 77 tour. Yeah, I have bootlegs. Tour. But in other words, you're able to say as objectively as possible, 
that even if you weren't there, the 78 tour is still the benchmark? I can say that, yeah, because I've, I've... That's I have, interesting. I have audio for every tour, and I have video for everything that's out there. So I've, you know, I've listened and I've heard, and I've uh, watched all these shows from all different eras of that band, and that one just sticks out to me. I don't know if it's why you tell. In other words, before I yeah, tell before you, you get the eyewitness's point of view. Yeah, let me get, let me get into some things that I think viewing yeah. that. I like I like I said, I think it's the benchmark for, for benchmark for the classic E Street Band lineup. Those seven guys greatest arrangement of that band i thought i think when steve left it was a little bit you know that was the first time where it's like oh it's not the same anymore you know so it's interesting in the 78 tour he had only been there three years the the least of anybody in the band at that point yeah and i think this was the kind of period where bruce kind of wanted to prove himself too so that's this is the era where he kind of solidified himself as having this reputation as this uh this like unparalleled entertainer this this band leader like like no other. And that's, I think, where he came into his own on this tour. He really wanted to show that. Rolling Stone magazine at the end of 78, when it had its best of year awards, which I don't know if it does anymore, but they used to have an end of year, you know, best record, best this, best that. And when it came to best live performance, and I still have the clipping somewhere in my file, but they said Bruce Springsteen East Street Band, I'll never forget the phrase they use, and the diamond hard, roughness and precision with the east street band and that's that and that's the quality the darkness tour in a sense that is what we're talking about pinning down what is that quality i think it's intensity he darkness Ah. on the edge of the town record has an intensity like no other not like born to run not like the river there's just right. something intense about driven. It's driven. Relent- it's, this is a passionate Relent- guy. Like he carried that onto the live show. Like every performance, whether he's doing Detroit medley or Backstreet, there's an intensity to him and the band as well. You know, you look at the uh, recent River thing they put out, and you look at the Capitol Theater video. You know, the nine nineteen seventy eight show that obviously we'll talk about. But you look at Bruce and. He is literally this human live wire where it was like not only was the guitar plugged in, but his whole body seemed like when you watch these videos now and you look back at it now, that 78 tour, his whole body seemed to be plugged in and, and electrified as much as the guitar was. Am I right? Yeah. Relentless is one of my favorite words. I love the word relentless. Bruce Springsteen yeah. is relentless when he plays. He will not stop until he gets and think about the to where he wants to be. You know, prove it all night. Actually, he wrote and performed it, and it is still his raison d'etre. It's exactly what you're describing: the intensity, the relentless. Yeah. The thing about that darkness tour, and to the people who did experience it live. That's what they'll tell you is, yeah, there was a relentless intensity. That mix by Jimmy Iovine in the truck outside the Capitol Theater. Now, I'm not enough of a Bruceologist to know how many shows Jimmy Iovine actually mixed. He did at least. That are of soundboard quality that exists today. At least five. hold a candle to September 19th, 1978. And if they exist, I have yet to hear them. Well, one thing we, were, we should say is that a lot of the reason why 
a lot of people like this tour is there are a lot of good recordings from this tour absolutely there is a there's a, a thing i got Aurora. recently yeah there's five there's five radio broadcasts they did right. all five of them were mixed by jimmy iovine and all uh of them were? all of them okay i've heard fox theater atlanta i've heard agora i've heard winterland i've heard uh uh was it berkeley whatever you said the five were that that yep. soundboard quality exists or whatever yep I don't think soundboard exists from Winterland. They've never had soundboard from Winterland. Oh yeah, I have that. I listened to it today, warming up for this. Yep. The famous Winterland night. Yeah, where he calls he... out Bill Graham at the end and everything. Yeah, for sure. It was. It was. They always say the Winterland show was the show that kind of should have ended, closed the Winterland. They yes. uh, Bill Graham had Grateful Dead play there on New Year's Eve, and then that was the end of Winterland. Yeah. But people Except always more, said that this show more, was the one that more <laughs> should have done. Discussion, though. Is the fact that Winterland in online polls and in pre-internet polls with Bruce fans, uh, Winterland, when when asked to name the single best show of the Darkness tour, forget about Bruce's whole career. That's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Uh, often I hear Winterland outranking nine nineteen seventy eight. Do you agree with me that no other extant recording exists that sounds like Capitol Theater? Nine nineteen seventy eight. Do you agree with that statement? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't hear what you're hearing so different than the other ones. What are you ones. hearing? What are you not hearing? To me, they all sound equally good. They all sound great. So when you hear Fox Theater Atlanta's "Prove It All Night," which is a pretty great "Prove It All Night," yeah. And you're telling me, orally as a musician, and I assume you have, yeah, and you got the best quality per se. Oh yeah. yeah. You're telling me, they they. In a sense, they don't have; they have the same sound. They well, they're not the same, but I, I don't hear a, I don't okay. hear a sonic, yeah. a sonically difference. Okay, I that's hear, amazingly better. I, now, being there live, if you were there, I'm sure it was an unbelievably brilliant show. This is why it's hard to say what was Bruce's single greatest show. If you were at those great shows, that is to you the single greatest show. But what we're left with is what we can hear and what we can see. Thank God John Cher had the foresight to videotape 9-1978. Because the bottom line is, Lee, that becomes the desert island artifact and what you give to the aliens if they come and they have room on their spaceship for only one item about Bruce Springsteen. What are you going to give them? In darkness, I can't be strong. Strangers from the city call my baby's number. They bring her toys. But when I could knock her, she smiles pretty. She knows I want to be Candy's boy. There's a sadness hidden in that pretty face. A sadness all her own. From which no man can keep Candy safe.
people talk about 9-1978 as being definitive. So I guess what I'm saying is... A lot of that has to do that there's document of it, right? Like, there could have been a better show in Boise, Idaho, but the only people that heard it were 15,000 people that were there, right? Okay, so okay. So here's the thing. It's just like anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, what what doesn't pure, purely exist after... If you don't have a record of it, quote, unintended, it's you know, legend. yeah, it's, it's hard legend, to make yeah. that art. And again, for the person seeing Bruce for the first time in Houston, 78, for instance, the show Bruce put out on the uh, on the Promise uh, box set. Which yeah, that was from the Summit, have, the summit Houston, yeah, now, 78. Now, you know, I've got a whole conspiracy theory why Capitol Theater was not put, put, on, put on there officially. I think it has to do with some kind of fallout between John Sher. It's a price the tag, price Theater tag probably. And, and Landau, because after the 78 tour, Starting in 1980 with The River, Cher never produced a Bruce show again. Ron Delsner took over, then it went to whatever it is now. The point is, is something happened where uh, uh, the Capitol Theater show, because it's associated with John Cher, I think has been kind of excommunicated from the Bruce Church. Interesting, in that uh, Promise box set, they actually have in that scrapbooky design, they show a little hint of the Capitol Theater recording, but obscured by other things over it. And that might have been their very interesting wink to this idea that they can't really put it out. You think they're that smart? It's probably Let just an accident. Scrapbook designerly, nothing winds up on a Columbia Sony package worth millions of dollars by accident. Yeah, maybe. This is the first and only television appearance Springsteen has ever done. And although exhausted, he agreed to talk with us after the show. Did you enjoy it as much as, uh, as, as the audience did as we did? And that exhilaration, you looked like you did, man. Did you like it a lot? Oh, really? We really liked it a lot. <laughs> Don't interview me! <laughs> How do you keep that pace up? That was three solid hours. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. You know, it's... Uh... I'm, I'm not sure, you know. Like I said, it must be a desperation or something, you know. <laughs> I don't know. But you get so much feedback and you give so much. And you must love it. You know, it's really must love it. You can see that because it's not like uh, you're there playing a star game. It's like you're playing your music to the people in that. And when they give it back to you, can you see it? Just Everything just gets electric. The whole band is so tight. You know, it's like... So it's the thing, it's the, I guess, probably the only thing that I live for, you know? And, uh, and when I get out there, I feel like, when I was a kid, you know, when I was at home, and uh, I didn't know nothing about nothing, I just rock and roll, got into my house, you know? Yeah. And uh, for me, it was the only thing that was ever true, and it was the only thing that, like, never, like, let me down, you know? And when I would go out on stage, no matter where we are, who's out there, you know, 10 people, 10,000 people, there's a, there's a lot to live up to. Like you said, and, and I'll be, I think I knew that even before you said it, that you're really genuine, you're really real, and you give yourself it. Now, when... Obviously, this is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, how can you sustain it? It's, it's a state of mind. It's not like, you know, if you run around, I think, thinking that, you know, you're something that you're not, you know, or you're uh, 
something that maybe the other people are telling you that you are instead of what you really know you are, you know. Uh, I always try to keep a beat on that as good as I can, you know. It's like, uh, then it stays real, you know. If, it's, if it stays real for you, you know, uh, I think it stays real, like, for the kids and for who you come in contact with, you know. It's like, what happens is there's a lot of things that... There's a lot of trappings and there's a lot of things that are there to tempt you, sort of, you know. But they're like just, they're the, you know, it's just meaningless, you know. It's all meaning, a lot of it is meaningless stuff, you know. And I just try to keep a hold on, uh, I play Buddy Holly every night before I go on. That, that keeps me honest, you know. <laughs> Tour starts May 23rd in Buffalo, and it's a couple weeks before the album even comes out. Right. And uh, just a little, a few statistics here. It ended uh, January first, seventy nine, New Year's Day in Cleveland. Cleveland. Did one hundred and fifteen shows total, with a pretty much straight through, with a, a little bit of a break in October. There, they were supposed to go to Europe, but that got canceled. No one, I'm not sure the reason why on that, but uh, didn't go to Europe. They played mostly uh, Born to Run and Darkness. Pretty much had every song played, and then a few here and there from the first two albums. There was also about a dozen unreleased Springsteen-written songs that were played live on this tour. Uh, Drive All Night, The Fever, Independence Day, a lot of stuff from The River, Point Blank, Ramrod, Sherry Darling, Ties That Bind, The Promise. And then the thing that I liked about this tour is he would start it, pretty much start it with a, with an oldie, like a rock and roll classic, right? So, yeah. And I think this is, this is something that I've done with my band, where it's like we'll do a set of songs that I've written, but I'll open up with uh, Richie Valens, Come On, Let's Go, I'll Go, or uh, Peggy Sue, or something like that. And it's the same kind of thing which Bruce is doing, where it's kind of he's setting the bar for the night. He's saying, okay, these, we have to live up to the tradition set by our rock and roll heroes, right? So a lot of these shows, he would start out with like Summertime Blues or Rave On, Good Rockin' Tonight, stuff like that.
July 1978, because it was radio broadcast from Maine to Florida, which was at the time Bruce's largest audience that he was playing to. So the reason why I believe 919 is definitive for many reasons is because, and given what he had to prove that year, which gets into the whole discussion of the buildup to darkness after the three-year gap between, and you got to remember, the three-year gap between 75 and 78, if you were a Bruce fan, felt like an eternity because in those days, it wasn't like today where... You know, major acts take five years between albums. There's so much pop culture and a 24-hour news cycle that it's not like back then. The Beatles always said, you always had to have a record out every six months. We made sure and da-da-da-da. So in those days, you had a a record every year. At least once a year. This is why Peter Frampton fell apart was because after that whole live thing in 76, it was like he was forced to come out with another album and he wasn't ready life-wise, you know? And Bruce, in a sense, I think is the first sort of postmodern after that to basically say, you know, I'm going to take time between the albums because it was also documenting his life. And when the news hit that it was called Darkness on the Edge of Town, you know, right away, you know, and, and, you know, the spirit in the night (laughs) and the, you know, night from Born to Run. So, you know, Darkness in the Chain, everybody was trying to figure out what would that be. When we finally got to perform on the Darkest on the Edge of Town tour after the record uh, was finished. It was almost like a wave of relief that uh, we had been able to withstand the pressure uh, of not recording, of not being able to do what Bruce wanted. It's amazing to me how he was able to withstand it and never crack and never really show at all how disturbing the whole thing must have been. Is it- moment where like I, I guess assessed my strengths and my weaknesses you know and uh, it was I'm glad it happened you know I'm like I don't I ain't got one regret about about you know one second in the past uh, three years because I learned a lot from it you can hear it you can hear it on the record I hope The Darkness album and the Darkness tour was such an important part of the Bruce Springsteen and E Street Band story because, in my view, it it really seemed like the first time that it is possible to do it your own way. And there was a ferocity in the band when we finally went out and started playing again that perhaps wasn't there earlier. Um, It was just a absolutely take no prisoners approach. And you got to remember, in the spring of 78, we had a two tantalizing sneak previews um, that are unprecedented. And what were they? These two songs because the night and fire come out a couple months in the spring you know darkness was right at the beginning of summer like they the came out before the, those, those two songs came out before 
Yes, and this is what Robert me, Gordon and the uh, Patty Smith let me version. Paint the picture of of the, what the, the impact those songs made, and then in retrospect, they were like it was like the Beatles putting out Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever before Sgt. Pepper came out. And, you know, the way things worked, it's like they had those singles ready. But yeah, but it wasn't Bruce's They version, weren't even so. on uh, Sgt. Pepper. But they were these incredible two singles. In a way, Fire and Because the Night are two of Bruce's greatest songs. In retrospect, not only that he gave away, but his own, I mean, they rank as, as two of his greatest songs, whether he gave them away or not. Take me now, baby, Hold me close, try and understand I worked all day out in the hot sun Rake my black till the evening
guitar solo that I describe as a berserk buzzsaw's drone, you can hear on Prove It All Night, Streets of Fire, Because the Night, probably one other that I can't even think of right now. Those to me... Adam Raised a Cane, did he play that that night? Is that on that um, I don't think he did that live that night, Adam Raised a Cane. Oh, that's the one he missed, uh, eh? Candy's Room. He did Candy's Room? That's got a great solo in it. Yeah, I mean, the, the Candy's Room is definitive. The um, Kitty's Back? Did not, not fade away into She's the One. Not that, that there's a guitar. Well, there's actually some beautiful guitar in that Not Fade Away. Absolutely, which is I love those. Not, listen, that Not Fade Away into She's the One medley is to me, again... He did that all on the Darkness tour. Sometimes. I do love the, uh, he does Mona. Mona. I love Mona. Okay. I, I might have to give Mona the edge on that one. Sweet little girl live down the line. Well, I want to tell you now, Mona's her name. Baby, I want to tell you what I want to do. I want to build a big house next door to you We'll go walking in the park We'll go kissing in the dark I need you baby, that's no lie Without your loving I might as well die Without your love, I might as well die. a beautiful little evocative the first song we hear from darkness was not badlands was not darkness on edge of town the title okay was it a single the first, the first song was prove it all night yeah and the one thing we were talking earlier about being relentless and being intense the intensity that he would have is back then is uh prove it all night was the first single and it didn't really do very well kind of flopped but he was kind well, of Bruce's singles flop. Yeah, Born to run. but it didn't do what they wanted. Like the first single off a, off a, a record they've been waiting almost three years to do, you right? So then he he puts it in the set list, but he does something to this song that just oh, yeah. puts it over the top. He starts with this whole new intro. Starts nobody off with a slow piano it, intro. Yeah, and nobody knew that it was proven all night. Again, there wasn't that much circulation of any live shows at the time. So for most people who saw the 78 Tour League, when they saw Prove It All Night live for the first time and heard it, chances are they had not heard it before and hearing it live was their first time hearing it, so they didn't know it was Prove It All Night. And that was part of the incredible buildup and the guitar solo stretching on like Bruce had never really done in a song and the way he built that band up classic bruce you know yeah. crescendo building good visuals and, too if you go back and you check the video right. he's really he's really yeah. uh, hammering that I up mean, man like the, the trills Jimmy on the has, notes yeah hammer on I mean, it's awesome great oh. 
think you're ready to prove it all, man? Prove it all, prove it all. 
much more than this If dreams came true, I wouldn't have been blessed Yes, I ain't no dream, but in the crude You want it, you take it, you pay the price For your love. Yes, I. just all really up and together and there seems to be even on stage a lot of really 
A lot of fun, that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. It looks like you're all having a lot of fun, which, of course, is the best way for it to look. Is, a is the tour going that well? Are you really having a good time? Or, or yeah, it, ha it has been real good. You know, it's, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been the best tour we've ever done. He had quite a show in Phoenix the other night. Yeah, it was I pretty, wasn't there, uh, but I heard about some real craziness. <laughs> yeah, it what was happened? It was pretty wild. Some little girl, uh, actually, it was three or there was a front row. There was about, I guess, ten or something, like fifteen-year-old girls, and and oh, the whole the place was going pretty, was going pretty crazy. You know, it was, uh, it was there was just a lot going on, and then and this little girl jumped up on stage. And kissed me so hard, about to put, almost knocked out my front tooth. I thought she was gonna, you know, it's like, we fell back, fell back on the stage. Everybody started screaming and running around, and uh, the kids got up on stage and danced, and it was, uh, it was just, a, it was just a lot of, you know, it was funny. It was. Uh, is that scary when it happens, or is it fun, a part of the fun and the madness of it all? Oh, it's 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 like, uh, it's not. It's not scary, you know, it's like it's, uh, you can always feel what's, you know, you can feel, you feel the situation out, you know, like uh, when you're on stage, it's like the, the people that come down to the shows are like, uh, it's not like, uh, it's they, it's an excited crowd, but it's not like me, you know, it's not, not it's at not all, a, no. No. So it just real turned on. I'm yeah, so happy. Just, you know, it's it's just a it's just a blowout. You know, it's like a, it's just a, which is what you want it to be. Big, just a big party and a know, big blowout. You know, it uh, should be fun, and uh, it was great. That was a great show. You know, that was like a lot of. That was one of the best shows we ever did. I maintain Lee that on nine nineteen seventy eight, he was channeling the fucking spirit of Jimi Hendrix. In those guitar solos, Prove It All Night, Because the Night, Backstreets, uh, and uh, Streets of Fire. Streets of Fire is, to me, Bruce's contribution to the blues. In the Hall of Fame of the blues, Bruce has one song that I would legitimately say is Bruce Springsteen's blues. Again, that buzzsaw drone that you don't get anywhere else. Great and vocals. He sings that great too. He's killing And he those. sings it. Oh, I yeah. mean, vocals at the end of the line. Here's somebody calling my oh, name. Yeah, That's yeah, great. <laughs> oh, listen, I could wax poetic ad nauseum. That's an underrated classic on, on Streets of Fire. That one, that's a classic. Oh, so, my point classic, is, one, yeah. Streets of Fire is Bruce Springsteen's blues. When the night's quiet. And you don't care anymore Your eyes are tired And there's someone at your door You realize You want to let go When the weak lies And cold walls you embrace Eat at your insides and leave you stranded face to face with streets of fire, streets of fire, streets of fire. 
So we were talking about Bruce moving from theaters into like bigger arenas, right. going from Not like the theaters, a couple thousand people. Now he's playing uh, hockey arenas and stuff like that. And the one thing too is he started getting into these extremely long sound checks where he would sound check the band for like three hours, unheard of back then. There's stories of him actually going like to the nosebleed yeah, seats, yeah, just talking to the sound guy and like we have to fix this and stuff like that. Just long, long sound checks and they could work on new material and stuff like that. And just just an intense perfectionist at this point, you know. You saw him at Madison Square Garden on this tour, right? That was your first show. That was my very first show, yeah. the very first time he played the garden. And then you also saw the same pretty much the same show but in the uh the Capitol Theater, right? Well, it's funny. Uh, that was, so that was all mid-August '78. Yeah. Was, was Massachusetts Garden. Then I think I saw him in Springfield, Massachusetts, in uh, early September of '78. Then came the Capitol Theater wow. show in mid-September. You saw three so, darkness so this, shows. Wow, yeah, it's amazing. So it's like, yeah, so it was like big arena, Massachusetts Garden, obviously. Springfield was your hockey arena. And then Capitol Theater was really 
for the Darkness Tour, one of the maybe one of the smallest places the band played, which is again why it's such a unique show, is that it's really the only time that he's playing North Jersey. This is before the Burn Arena is built, billed as the E Street Band, you know, headlining yeah. a place at that time. The only time he had headlined as Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band in New Jersey was, you know, down by the shore. I think in 76, he does a show in Monmouth County right. in a Count Basie Theater, whatever, billed as Bruce Springsteen's Eastern Band. But he never played North Jersey, and he had a lot of fans up in North Jersey. First time I saw Bruce was in 1978. <laughs> I'd never seen anything like that. It was shocking. I, I was surprised that you could be in such a large venue and still feel that you're having a personal experience. When you come out there in that dark, you make that mess, <laughs> you pull something that doesn't exist out of the air. Doesn't exist until on any given night when you're standing here in front of your audience. Nothing exists in that space until you go one, two, three, four, boom. Then you and the audience together manifest an entire world entire set of values, an entire way of thinking about your life and the world around you. And an entire set of possibilities. That can never be taken away. What did Bruce have to prove? He had to prove all the naysayers you know, you got to remember, darkness was not totally embraced by the critics. I remember the Village Voice headline for their review was Born to Rerun. And a lot of people, a lot of critics thought darkness was too insular, too hermetic. You know, uh, you know, it's not, you know, it's not like the live shows. It's not spontaneous. It's, you know, there was a lot of uh, it was not, you know, this, you know, it's considered now not only one of his classic records, but many Bruce fans consider it their favorite or greatest record. Am I right? It's my number two. I love that record. I don't see anything but wrong with that. For sure. It's that, a 10. It's a 10. Yeah. So let's talk about that specific show in New Jersey where you did some art for it and you had a, a special story at the end of the night. Let's get into Perfect. that, Arlen. What do you Absolutely. Mean? Yeah. So uh, in the summer of 78, I'm living in uh, North Jersey. I'm in between my... Uh, sophomore and junior years majoring graphic design at Rodan School of Design and with the summer that darkness came out when I came home from Providence and was living in North Jersey that summer I must have gone to Corvette's record department in Paramus New Jersey every day is the record out is the record out you know from you know the mid to late May to June 8th pre-internet obviously there was no news yeah. You had to go to a record store to see if the record came they out. They didn't really right? have hard release dates back then. There you wasn't, know? Yeah, I mean, who knows? And then who was going to write about it? The New York Times? Right, no. Right, yeah, no so my point is, wherever the news came from, yeah, Rolling Stone magazine, again, was where they they were the first ones. Or Actually, I remember reading it in the uh, you know Boston equivalent of the Village Voice first. The point is, is there wasn't a lot of news. So I'll never forget the, the Corvette's record manager after me going in there 10 days in a row said, listen, you should get in touch with this guy named Ken Viola. He lives nearby in Hackensack. 
He's the editor and publisher of this Bruce Springsteen fan magazine called Thunder Road. Now, Lee, since I'm a human cartoon character because I draw comic book style art, imagine this thought balloon appearing above my head with the classic idea, the light bulb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I immediately think I've got to become the art director of that magazine. He had published one issue of Thunder Road with a partner, and this was before Backstreet. Backstreet started a couple years later in 1980 by Charles Cross out in Seattle. But Ken Viola was in North Jersey. He was nine years older than me. We met. He used to be a roadie for Bruce. He worked for John Cher doing security at the Capitol Theater. And he had gone on tour, I think maybe the 77 tour as a roadie with, because Cher produced a lot of Bruce's regional concerts, you know? So, um, so through, so Ken, so I started working on Thunder Road Magazine that summer, uh, preparing the new issue, which is going to be all about darkness in the tour. So Ken Viola calls me up one day that summer as I'm about to go back to school in early, you know, late August. And he says, Arlen, uh, John Sher is going to have three concerts at the Capitol Theater in late September. And he wants to have a special marquee design because he sees this as a homecoming after Bruce basically proved to the world that had written them, him, them off. As, like I said, the, the, the album wasn't totally favorably received. And critics, I remember reading articles called Whatever Happened to Bruce Springsteen because that three-year gap in those days, if you weren't around, they wrote you off as whatever happened to Bruce Springsteen. So he comes back with a chip on his shoulder to prove to people that Born to Run was no fluke, that he was on the cover of Time and Newsweek, that he was a legend here to stay. And him and the band just go out on that darkness tour with this hell-bent for leather kind of attitude. So that summer, it was the triumphant darkness tour because market for market, he went across barnstorming the United States. He not only played in his favorite haunts, but he played in cities across the country. This is why they probably didn't play Europe, because this was all about Bruce reclaiming America as I am your rock and roller.
just talked. Let me down. I gotta make an emergency announcement. I just uh, talked to the home manager, and he wanted me to announce that if there's anybody, if there's anybody in the house tonight that has a weak stomach or a weak heart, could you please, during the next section of this song, step out into the lobby as it might be dangerous to your health. so bad I mean a big man do this ain't so bad I mean a big man do this and you can even get off with light injuries and a short trip to the emergency room when we do this now I bet all them guys on the radio are wondering what we're doing. I didn't do it yet. When I do this, you're in trouble. Born to Run, he had to prove to CBS that he was even worth keeping on a label. So after the incredible second album, they said, come up with a hit single if you want to stay alive. And what does he come up with? Born to Run. So you would think after delivering Born to Run, it's like Orson Welles delivering Citizen Kane. Everybody wants to know, okay, what's next? Well, Orson Welles delivers Magnificent Ambersons, which if it hadn't been cut up by the critics, critics say that would have been even greater than Citizen Kane. So what does Bruce deliver after the masterpiece of Born to Run? He delivers fucking darkness on the edge of town, which is a, a classic all of its own in a whole different vein. And anyway, so that's what the tour was. So he says, Arlen, do you want to illustrate the marquee? I was like, yeah, let me check my schedule and see if I can handle that job. Are you kidding me? So he goes, Arlen, what do you want for it? So I remember I said, listen, you know, and they, they announced that the first of the three shows, September 19th, 
was going to be radio broadcast up and down the East Coast from Maine to Florida. Bruce's biggest audience to date, if you factor in all those markets. And that was Bruce saying to the East Coast New York record establishment, the PLJs, the New York DJs that didn't even play his first two albums like Cleveland and Philly. Mike Appel pissed off the New York DJs. We in northern New Jersey missed Bruce's first two albums. And if you weren't old enough to see him down at the shore, I only came into Bruce with a song Born to Run. Yeah, you didn't hear all those songs. No one heard those songs. So you have this book by that photographer. What's his name? Uh, uh, not Frank Stefanko, is it? No, no, no. This is what's his name? Um, he advertised Lawrence Kirsch. Oh, uh, no, did, I don't have it. He did all the did, live darkness. He did two things. books for you and Light in the Darkness, which is only about dark story, written yeah. by fans. And I'm telling you, these are the, if you can find them, these are the best Bruce books. And he's got but some reproductions a, of your Yeah, art there's in a there. great picture. Yeah, a photo of the marquee. So me and five buddies from Rhode Island School Design and my older cousin, Barbara, who saw Bruce in 1973 open up for Chicago on the CBS record tour, we end up going there Tuesday night, September 19th. Oh, so I bargained to do the marquee art. I said, give me six six-throw seats because I was born on June 6th, so that's my lucky number. Yeah, yeah. I said, six six-throw seats for me, my cousin, and four of my best. And, uh, you know, and I picked the opening night, not only because I thought the opening night's a great energy. Bruce always played 100% tighter than other shows when he knew it was being radio broadcast. Because back then, you were making a live album because you knew people were taping it. So I know, I think during the Roxy show, he says, bootleggers, roll them tapes. Right? Yeah, before uh, Paradise by the Sea. <laughs> Like video exists of the second and third nights of Capitol Theater that were not radio broadcasts. And while there are some good performances on both those shows, compared to the 919 radio broadcast show, it's like dress rehearsals compared to the actual show. Yeah. And yet those dress rehearsals were pretty fucking great, just on their own, and ask anybody that went to those shows. But I think Bruce says to the band, like, hey guys, we're making a live album tonight, so make sure you're on point. Bruce singing into the mic. He doesn't even open his eyes during the show when he sings. He is singing for posterity. He is singing for the ages, knowing that this is the performance that everybody is hearing to find out, was this guy Bruce Springsteen for real? So there we are in the sixth row of what ended up being not only a show of all of our lives, but in retrospect, yeah, maybe his single greatest hymn in the band's performance hearing that prove it all night solo and when the band comes in with the chorus it blew the top of our heads off yeah, that's crazy the, so the because good. the night before promised land is definitive um people 
that loved Sandy. It's not one of my favorite Bruce songs, but the live version of Sandy is definitive. Oh, and by the way, you know this little-known song of Bruce's, Thunder Road? Maybe you've heard of it. Do you know the definitive live version that most Thunder Road fans agree is the Capitol Theater and why? <laughs> it's the only a time that he delivers the story behind the poster, uh, the, behind the title. When he talks about, I based the song on a Robert Mitchum movie poster yeah, called yeah. Thunder Road. That was a cool and, thing on that tour, too, because they would always do Racing in the Street into Thunder Road. And, Thunder yeah, Road, yes. And Roy would carry the piano from the outro yes. Racing in the Street right so into in Thunder that, Road. So oh, goosebumps, only, man. Right. Only on Capitol Theater. He does a thing about the movie, right? Talking about, yeah. Tell, and again, this is what I mean about Bruce's delivering for the ages. I and saw movie posters in Thunder Road. He was saying to the East Coast establishment, you want to know where Thunder Road comes from? I'll tell you. And this is the only time I'm going to tell you because this is the audience of my life right now. Who was this? Who was this Robert Mitchum movie? And it was about these moonshine runners down south. And I never saw the movie. I only saw the poster in the lobby of the theater. <laughs> I took a title and I wrote this song, but I didn't, I didn't think that there was ever a place that was like, that was like what I wrote this song or not, you know, I didn't know if it was or not. And, uh, we were out in the desert over the summertime, driving, uh, driving to Nevada, and we came upon this, this house on the side of the road this Indian and built. Had a big picture of Geronimo out front with a landlord, said landlord over top. Had a big sign that said, this is a land of peace, love, justice, and no mercy. And I pointed down this little dirt road that says Thunder Road. This is for Maddie. what happened after the show there yes so ken viola told me arlen uh if you hang out like for 45 minutes after the show bruce and the band will come out from behind the stage and remember capitol theater is about a 3,000 seat 
old-fashioned theater, yeah. you know, say New Jersey. So and you're talking like just amongst like they would just come out and hang out with the audience, people really? still lingering. In other words, not backstage. This is just hanging out. You know, in like they're tearing days, down the they're tearing down the gear. Security. Yeah, there was no different security, whatever security. There were a couple of guys and teachers. My point is, nobody shuffled you out. You could yeah. hang out. And Bruce that was, was kind of known for mingling, for mingling with people after the show, kind of thing, right? It's fans. He wasn't one of those guys to go and go partying and go drinking. And- yeah. So, and sure enough, about forty-five minutes later, uh, Bruce and the band start coming out, just like Ken Viola said. Everybody but Clarence. Uh, he was the only one that didn't. So, you know, if you know the stories of Clarence and yeah, the, little, you know, uh, a lady to attend to. Who knows what was going on? But the point is, is he had, he had some kids to father that night. And I had the original art to the marquee. Bruce was busy talking to about a dozen fans. He was drenched in sweat, I remember, with a guinea tea on. But I saw the other band members. I introduced myself. Uh, Max was talking about to see his mother or something. And... You know, Danny Federici and, uh, you know, everybody but Clarence. And then I was figuring out how am I going to get to see Bruce. And then I see John Landau. And I was the only one that recognized John Landau. So I went up to Landau and I introduced myself and I said, Mr. Landau, I did the marquee art outside. And, you know, uh, I go, I would just love to meet, you know, the man who changed my life. And Landau goes to me, you know, he changed my life, too. And if you know the story of Landau... Yeah, he said, I have seen the future of rock and roll. He also saw his own future and made it happen. I mean, that whole story unto itself is as great as Joe Namath predicting the Jets would win the Super Bowl. I mean, it's one of the greatest predictions of all time that came true, that Bruce did become the future of rock and roll. And uh, Landau saw it. So he goes up to Bruce and interrupts him telling what I thought were drinking stories or something to these dozen or so fans and my buddies uh, my cousin and my four buddies are kind of with me and um, so I must have had a grin from ear to ear but but Landau goes up to Bruce and says Bruce there's somebody special I want you to meet and are you kidding me and all eyes turn to me and I must have had a grin from ear to ear but you got to remember Lee I was ready to meet Bruce Springsteen I was 20 years old at the time, there wasn't that many printed stories, but I went to the Rhode Island School Design Library, to the periodicals, read whatever interviews had been published with him. There wasn't a lot, but whatever there was, I read up on. And I knew what rock and roll meant for Bruce. You know, he was a white trash kid from, you know, lower middle class New Jersey. And rock and roll was the only culture in his life that saved his life. You know, I felt that, and I wanted to tell Bruce that what he did for me, and by extension, all of us, was what rock and roll did for him. So I go up to Bruce, he's about my height, I'm like 5'8", and I said, Bruce, I did the marquee, and you know, and he signed it to Arlen, which was great, he wrote my name. And then I looked him in the eye, and again, he's my height, and we were like eight inches apart, and I looked him right in the eye, And I said, Bruce, I just want to say one thing to you. Your music means more to me than anything else in the world. And I delivered a lead just like that. Now, I know the sound sacrament. I'm going to cry, man. That's so sweet. (laughs) I delivered it right into his eyes. And what I wanted to impart was everything I just told you. I wanted to say it with the seriousness that I meant it. And there was that little flashly 
that I think Bruce got exactly what I meant. And why do I know that? Because simultaneously with getting that flash of connection, Bruce responded to what I said to him. He didn't say a word. He hugged me like a brother. And if you've seen that Brian De Palma movie where, and the Hitchcock, where the couples are embracing and the camera is circling around, <laughs> you know that feeling? Yeah. That's what I remember, Lee, from that moment. Oh, that's beautiful, man. That, you lucky son of a bitch, man. That's a great moment. And the dozen fans around me, I, I don't remember whether they clapped. There was some. They're just, groups. oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a heavenly quiet. But in other words, I'm trying to paint you the picture of the feeling yeah. was me and a Brian De Palma camera move, the 360 degree. But the fans who were standing around let out. And I think the way I describe it, I was the ultimate fan delivering the ultimate message to Bruce that everybody agrees and feels. And I delivered it, not gushingly over the top, but pretty straight, right into his eyes. And again, Bruce could have responded any number of ways. Hey man, like everybody predicts. Hey man, thanks, I really appreciate it. But no, he gave me, Lee, the Zen most perfect response based on what I was giving him. It's amazing, eh? All these stories you hear about Bruce Springsteen. He really is just a great guy. Like he just That's what I mean. he just goes the extra mile to make people feel great. Like that story Tom told about him getting yeah. off stage. He just seems like a sweet guy, you know? <laughs> you know? After 38 years, I'm finally releasing beautiful limited edition prints of the Capitol Theater images that are similar to this beautiful poster I have here. So this and the marquee image, two other images that I did through Ken Viola. The Rogue Magazine. If people go to my website, arlenschumer.com, and click on the Springsteen subpage, they'll see the images there. Uh, I think there's also a separate website um, address. It's arlenschumer.com slash Springsteen78 or something. The images used to be bootleg back when there were record stores. I used to go into the back of the record stores, and there would be my Capitol Theater image statting from the little reproduction book and blown up and sold. Finally, I met the right printer. He's the perfect partner. He's got what I call the means of production, like the communists used to say. So, and they're beautifully printed. Uh, there's limited edition, digital prints, all different sizes. <laughs> I love that. that as, as Colin uh, Quinn used to say, uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Thanks a lot, Arlen. That was a good this one. Great. I love you.
Hope you enjoyed this episode. The music featured all came from the five 1978 radio broadcasts of shows from Hollywood, Cleveland, Jersey, Atlanta, and San Francisco. All these shows came out recently in a 15-CD box set titled The Complete Radio Broadcasts. It's from the uh, Soundstage label. Very affordably priced. I think I paid about $30, including shipping for the entire set. So that's highly recommended. Check it out. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk with you later. So, that's the show, folks. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website at TrampsLikeUsPod.com, communicate with us on Facebook at our Tramps Like Us podcast group page, and on Twitter at Tramps Like Us Pod. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, where you can leave a review and a five-star rating. Trams Like Us podcast is a non-profit audio fanzine created by fans for fans and is available for free. We are not affiliated with Bruce Springsteen or Columbia Sony Records. If you've heard any music you like, please find it and purchase it from BruceSpringsteen.net, iTunes, Amazon, your local record store, or wherever music is sold. As always, gratitude and respect to Bruce Springsteen and all past and current members of the heart-stopping, pants-dropping, hard-rocking, booty-shaking, earthquaking, love-making, viagra-taking, history-making, testifying, death-defying, legendary E Street Band. Sadly, Prince left our world April 21st. I assume he vanished in a big puff of purple smoke into the nether regions of the galactic stratosphere. There are a lot of comparisons one can make between Prince and Bruce Springsteen, both great songwriters, musicians, entertainers, band leaders. I was 10 years old in 1984 and born in the USA and Purple Rain were my soundtracks that summer. Both those records bring me back to that great time in my life. The closest Bruce ever got to a number one single was when Dancing in the Dark went to number two, held out of the top spot by Wind Dove's Cry. So for the outro tag on this episode, I'm going to leave you with Bruce's version of Purple Rain, which he opened his show in Brooklyn with on April 23rd, featuring a killer Nils Lofgren guitar solo, great background vocals by Steve. Prince, forever, God bless. Never meant to cause you any sorrow. Never meant to cause you any pain I only wanted to see you laughing Only wanted to see you laughing in my purse
never steal you from another It's such a shame our friendship had to end Purple rain, purple rain Purple rain, purple rain Purple rain, purple rain Your mind. I think you better close it.